Last week, our podcast lesson focused on the Bible's own claims for its inspiration. In today's lesson, Eric Lyons will discuss the reliability of the Bible. Is the Bible filled with discrepancies and errors? Are there legitimate contradictions found within the pages of the Bible? Join Eric as he discusses specific examples of alleged contradictions and presents in-depth, Bible-based answers showing that the Bible is without error and is thus truly God's Word. His preacher described him as a solid Christian. He was a young man just like many of the young people that we see here today who grow up being brought to Bible classes and worship services on the first day of the week for a number of years as they are growing up. This particular young man, his grandmother had brought him to the worship services of our Lord since he was just a young child. And the congregation saw him grow similar as Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And he continued to grow and he eventually became a Christian and he eventually began taking more part in the works of the church and in taking some leadership roles in the worship services. At time, from time to time he would lead the congregation in prayer. He might give a short talk or lead the congregation in Bible reading. But when he turned 18, he left to go to a university not too far from his hometown, about an hour or a little less away from his hometown. He enrolled in several classes, and one of those classes was a class on world religions. Now this young man, he seemed pretty confident in his faith. He understood about the church and about Jesus and about the Bible being the Word of God and about there really being a God. And he sat in this class day after day and heard a teacher say things that were very different than what he believed. And he was surrounded by students who believed things different than what he believed, and they began to talk to him about how their really isn't a God and how the Bible is not the Word of God. And they eventually gave him a list of approximately 70 alleged Bible contradictions. The list was titled, Factual Discrepancies. And the young man mulled over these for days and days. And it was not many months later that he went back to his hometown there in West Virginia. And he went back to his childhood mentor, uh, his best friend's father, and he gave him a list of factual discrepancies, as it is titled here. I talked to this preacher some years ago, and he informed me of this sad, true story about a young man, like unfortunately a lot of young people do, grow up learning some things, but they may not feel very confident in their defense of the Christian faith. And so he, he gave this to his preacher or his former preacher, and he said, this is why I no longer believe the Bible to be the Word of God. And to the best of my knowledge, this young man is, has not repented of those sins and has come back to the Lord. And so he believes that the Bible is not the Word of God because he was given a list of factual discrepancies and he's been told by several people that the Bible is not trustworthy, that God does not exist, that there is no need to be a member of the Lord's church because who really knows if the Lord really ever lived or not and He surely wasn't God in the flesh. Unfortunately, we hear stories like this far too often. And we are hearing more and more from skeptics and Bible critics who are more intense in their criticisms of Christ and the Bible and of God the Father. I was talking to a young man down in southern Alabama some months ago. He was a youth minister down there. And he was telling me when he was in college how he took a particular class. And at the beginning of the semester that the professor said, 
Anyone in this class who believes in God, stand up. And the young man who was telling me this story said seven of us stood up in a very large class. There were seven of us who stood up. And the professor said, by the end of this semester, not one of you will stand up when I ask that question. And at the end of the semester, he asked the question again. And there was one, this young man, who stood up when that question was asked. The fact is that Bible critics and those who are criticizing the Bible's inspiration have a lot to say about the Bible supposedly not really being the Word of God. Dan Barker in his book, Losing Faith in Faith, from preacher to atheist, said on pages 164 and 177, people who are free of theological bias notice that the Bible contains hundreds of discrepancies. The Bible is a flawed book. There's another gentleman by the name of Dennis McKenzie. He edited a skeptical journal for a number of years and eventually wrote a book titled The Encyclopedia of Biblical Errancy. And in this uh, book, he made the statement, every analyst of the Bible should realize that the book is a veritable miasma of contradictions, inconsistencies, inaccuracies, poor science, bad math, inaccurate geography, immoralities, degenerate heroes, false prophecies, boring repetitions, childish superstitions, silly miracles, and dry as dust discourse. But contradictions remain the most obvious, the most potent, and the most easily proven, and the most common problem to plague the book. Supposedly, the Bible contains numerous factual discrepancies and thus because of that, we should not be here today. We should not believe that the Bible is the Word of God. There is no point in being a Christian. Let me show you a few of the alleged factual discrepancies that the young man from West Virginia was given when he entered the university not far from his hometown. One of the alleged factual discrepancies is that Jesus... Could not, have, could not have appeared to the twelve apostles. And they point out that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the apostle Paul says that Jesus, after His resurrection, was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 5. Well, you probably know that Judas, after he betrayed Jesus, went out and hanged himself. And then Matthias, who took Judas' place, was not chosen to be an apostle until after Jesus' resurrection and subsequent ascension up into heaven. And so, the skeptic says, there is an obvious contradiction here. Jesus could not have been seen by the twelve apostles. So why did the apostle Paul, who said that he wrote through inspiration, and we believe that he was an inspired writer, why do we believe that if Paul made a mistake? What many people don't realize or don't allow the Bible writers to do is allow, is allow them to use figures of speech just like we use today all of the time. We use figures of speech when we don't even know that we're using figures of speech. It may be sarcasm or simile or metaphor, hyperbole. We, we use all sorts of figures of speech. Well, the Bible writers oftentimes used figures of speech. And there is several options when we come to these so-called mistakes by the Bible writers. It could be that we are not realizing and noticing that they are using a figure of speech. For example, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it may be that the Apostle Paul was using the number 12 as more of a name than a literal number. Now you think, well, Eric, why 
would the Apostle Paul have used that kind of word that way? Why would he have used a number? Well, you realize that today we oftentimes use numbers as more of names. Some of you may be familiar with the Big Ten Conference. It's a conference up in the northern part of the United States. Schools like Ohio State and Michigan and Michigan State are in the Big Ten Conference. The Big Ten Conference is called the Big Ten Conference because they had ten teams when the conference was formed. Do you know how many teams the Big Ten Conference has in it today? Eleven. Eleven teams in the Big Ten Conference. Now, I grew up in Oklahoma. We used to be the Big Eight. We added four teams. We became the Big Twelve. We have Oklahoma and Oklahoma State in the Big 12 Conference. Some people may choose to add teams to their conference and they change the name so that the number reflects the name and the name reflects the number. Well, there are other groups who may say, we want to keep our number because that number has become more of a name than a literal number. And so we talk about the Big Ten Conference all the time. And we don't refer to ourselves as making a contradiction because they really have 11 teams in that conference. There's also another conference up in the, the northeastern part of the United States called the Atlantic Ten Conference. They used to have ten teams in this conference. Last I checked, they had, I believe, 14 teams in the Atlantic Ten Conference. Why do they continue to call themselves the Atlantic Ten? Because the number ten has become more of a name than a literal number. The last few weeks I've had a lot of fun. Some of the most fun I've had in recent days building my children a treehouse. And I, I am not a carpenter, and you could probably tell by the work on this treehouse, but I, I love to be outside when I can. And I've been down to the, the lumber yard recently, and I've gotten several different pieces of wood, some that are two-by-sixes, some that are four-by-fours, some that are two-by-fours. Now, if there are anyone here to, there's anyone here today, or those watching this video today, you know, if you know much about woodwork and you know much about carpentry, you know that when you go to get a 2x4, you're not getting a literal 2x4. The other day I was measuring the 2x4s I got and I saw that they were about one and a half inches by three and a half inches. I asked for a 2x4. I heard a story one time of a, a woman who went down to the lumber yard to get some 2x4s and she was a Christian and she purchased them from a Christian and she went home and she measured those two by fours and they were not two by fours and she believed that she might have been cheated out of lumber. Well, the fact is, in recent times, we call uh, different sizes and, and shapes of wood by measurements that may not be those literal measurements. They are more of a name. Back in 1884, which I believe is when the term two by four was coined, you may have gotten a piece of wood two by four inches, but... I don't know anyone who gets literal two-by-fours today. Well, the fact is, sometimes we use numbers as more of names, and we know that sometimes in the ancient days, in biblical times, they use numbers as more of names and literal numbers. In fact, you know that after Jesus rose from the dead, we have an example in the uh, Gospel of John where Jesus appeared to the disciples. Now notice what John says in John 20 and verse 24. He says, Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. Notice that even John was referring to the apostles as the twelve, even after Judas had gone out and hanged himself and before Matthias had yet been chosen as an apostle. And so, there are logical reasons why the Bible writers may have written the way that they did. 
Of course, there's another possibility here as well. It involves a figure of speech known as prolepsis. The definition of prolepsis goes something like this. The assignment of something, such as an event or a name, to a time that precedes it. If you're anything like me, you may not get quite as much out of definitions as you do in an illustration. Well, we use prolepsis on a fairly regular basis as well. We don't define it all the time. But if you've ever said, I married my wife on such and such a date, and gentlemen, I recommend that you remember that date. I was married on Saturday, June the 14th. I try to remind myself, myself of that on a regular basis. Well, if you've ever said you, have, you married your wife or you married your husband, you are using the figure of speech known as prolepsis because you didn't marry your wife. You married the woman who became your wife after you married her. Is it not possible that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the Apostle Paul referred to Jesus being seen by the twelve and he was including Matthias in that number? Was Matthias one of the twelve? Yes. Was he one of the twelve at the point when Jesus arose from the dead and appeared to the apostles? No, he wasn't. But we know, according to Acts chapter 1, that Matthias had to have seen the resurrected Lord to be an apostle. And so we know that he witnessed the resurrection. He was going to become a witness of that resurrection. And he was an apostle, even though it was at a later time. But the apostle Paul could easily, just like we do today, and as can be found in various other places in Scripture, the Bible writers used figures of speech, whether it be putting numbers more as names or using the figure of speech known as prolepsis. Another one of the so-called factual discrepancies on the list that the young man was given in his class on world religions was the idea that Judas died twice, the Bible records, and thus there is a contradiction. They asked the question, how did Judas die? Apparently the young man couldn't figure this out. Maybe he didn't try very hard. I don't know. I visited a website not long ago, and the website was called The World's Most Difficult Bible Quiz. And on this quiz, they had the question, How did Judas die? Matthew chapter 27 tells us he went out and hanged himself. Acts chapter 1 says he burst open, or he fell headlong, and he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails come out, came out. All his guts came out, for lack of a better term. The skeptic says, the critic says, this young man was told in his university that this is a contradiction because Judas supposedly could not have gone out and hanged himself and also could not have fallen headlong and burst open in the middle. And so when you take this quiz, they say that if you allege that Judas went out and hanged himself, you're wrong because Acts chapter 1 tells us that he burst open in the middle. And they say if you choose that he burst open in the middle, you're wrong because they say Matthew 27 has already indicated that he went out and hanged himself. Let me ask you a question. Do either one of these statements really contradict the other? Do these statements indicate that the other one cannot be true? You see, what we have here is a simple use of supplementation by the Bible writers, just as we oftentimes supplement each other's stories. Kyle and I, we travel around from time to time. We may be involved in, in uh, communication with various individuals. And you know, Kyle, he loves to tell those stories. But sometimes he gets some details a little... He, he might say them a little differently than I would. 
doesn't get them wrong, but just might say them a little differently. And I might bring up, well, Kyle, don't you remember that also this occurred when we traveled to Butikal a few months ago? Or that this happened when we went into Austin? You see, we may not contradict each other. It may simply be the idea of supplementation. We oftentimes supplement each other's stories where there's not a contradiction. It's simply uh, the understanding that we are saying different things but not contradictory things. The quiz that I referred to just a few moments ago entitled The World's Most Difficult Bible Quiz is actually the world's most misleading Bible quiz. They would like visitors to that website to think that these uh, questions, these Bible questions cannot be answered because they supposedly are contradictory when in actuality either they're explained by use of supplementation or by not understanding various figures of speech or other things. The fact is supplementation does not equal contradiction. Consider a few examples of supplementation in Scripture. In Matthew chapter 14 you recall that Jesus fed the 5,000 men and the text says besides whom? Some of you have been hearing this story since you were just a young child, besides the women and children. But when you flip over to Mark's gospel account, when he recounts this story, he simply mentions the 5,000 men. So because Matthew didn't mention the women and children, or because Matthew added the detail, the women and children, does that mean that we have a bona fide contradiction here? Not at all. You simply have one writer giving more information, but not contradictory information, than another writer. In Matthew chapter 27, you may recall that Jesus' body, after He died on the cross, was taken by a man the Bible names Joseph of Arimathea. And he took him and buried him in his tomb. But when you turn over to John's Gospel account, you read that Joseph of Arimathea was not alone, but another man who earlier in that Gospel account, you recall, who came to Jesus by night, also was with Joseph of Arimathea. Again, is this a contradiction? No, it's simply an example, another example, of the Bible writers supplementing each other's accounts. It's frustrating to me from time to time when I read what various Bible critics have to say because I feel like we're in a no-win situation as far as the critics may claim, well, if they are too much alike, then they must have copied each other. You know, if you ever see a show with detectives who are interviewing various suspects, and they have four suspects that they're going to interview, and each one of the suspects gives the exact same story down to the very smallest, minutest detail, such as, well, we walked across the street at 10.15, and at 10.19, we made a phone call over here on this payphone, and at 10.25, we walked to the store... If a detective interviewed this person and that person and then two other people and they had the exact same story, what is that detective going to think? Well, they participated in collusion. They fabricated the story. It is too much alike. But when the critic sees, well, there are some differences here, then they are not similar enough. And so the Bible writers must have made mistakes. And so what's... What is the Christian to do? Well, to understand that the Bible writers did write independently of each other. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and their writings do not contradict each other. They merely supplement each other. Consider one of the well-known challenges to the Christian's faith regarding Jesus and His resurrection. Some declare that the Gospel writers made mistakes in regard to who they said appeared at the tomb of Jesus 
on that morning of His resurrection. Matthew chapter 28 indicates that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb. But when you flip over to Mark's account, Mark says Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come to anoint Him. But when you look in John's gospel account, he says on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. Dan Barker has three or four pages dedicated to the resurrection accounts there in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he is very adamant about saying they contradict each other. And this is one of those alleged contradictions. Well, notice very carefully, even though that you have different individuals mentioned here, that none of the writers said only this person was there. Notice that John didn't say that Mary Magdalene was the only one who came to the tomb. Just because one person may mention one and another writer may have mentioned three or four doesn't mean that they are contradicting each other. If I begin telling you a story about how John and Jordan and Jacob and I, how we went to Six Flags, but you found out later that the three of them were not the only ones who went with me, but Kyle also went and various other ones, would you be correct in alleging that I lied because I didn't tell you every single person who went to Six Flags with us? I'm not obligated to tell you everyone, and for whatever reasons that the Holy Spirit had in guiding these men, He didn't guide them to write every single person who was there in each and every single account. Again, you have another example of supplementation, not contradiction. Another one of the alleged discrepancies that the young man was handed in his classroom there on world religions was how the temptations of Jesus by Satan, how they're not listed in the correct order, supposedly. Because in Matthew and Luke, in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, they both, they both list how the devil tempted Jesus to turn the stones to bread. But then after that, we have Matthew listing that they went up to the pinnacle of the temple and Satan tempted Jesus to throw himself down off of the temple. And then he had, fall down and worship me. But when you read Luke's account, the last two were inverted. In Luke's account, you have... Satan tempting Jesus to fall down and worship Him and then throw yourself off of the pinnacle of the temple. Admittedly, when we look at this perhaps for the first time, someone might say, well, this just doesn't seem right. This must be a contradiction. And then we need to pause for just a moment and think, well, how do we talk in everyday life? And how has, have people talked throughout the centuries? Have people always listed things in chronological order all the time? No. You might go back to that amusement park that some of us went to, in the story that is, and we may have ridden this roller coaster and that roller coaster and several other roller coasters, and then we might come back and tell people all of the roller coasters that we rode. And I might tell you the roller coaster that we rode from the least thrilling roller coasters to the most thrilling roller coasters, and Kyle might tell you the most thrilling roller coasters to the least thrilling roller coasters, but we don't tell you why we're giving you the order that we're giving them in. Now, because we give those in different orders, does that mean that we lied? Not at all. Even sometimes history books are not written in strict chronological order. You may look in a history book and see where they're talking about the Middle Ages in Europe, say from about 1000 A.D. to uh, A.D. 1300. And then the next chapter you may flip over may be the medieval times in India, which may have been from A.D. or 150 B.C. to 1400 A.D. You see, there may be somewhat of a chronological arrangement, but then at other times it may be a topical 
arrangement. Well, you see, the skeptic cannot prove that Matthew and Luke were intending on giving the temptations of Christ, that both of them were intending on doing this in chronological order. They tell us what the temptations were, but just because they're not in the same exact order, does that not mean that they contradicted each other's accounts? One of the more famous alleged discrepancies that I have heard of through the few years that I've been on this earth is how many times did the rooster crow when Peter denied Jesus? And as you can imagine, this was another one of the alleged factual discrepancies that the young man was given that he apparently could not answer and eventually left his faith in God and the Bible as the Word of God behind. In Matthew, Luke, and John's account, we read very similar phrases. Let me read from Matthew's account here and what we have in Matthew 26, verse 34. Assuredly, I say to you, Jesus said to Peter, that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And then we find out later in that account, as we do in Luke and John's, after Peter's third denial, immediately a rooster crowed. And the skeptic says, I know a passage that contradicts this. And they say in Mark's account, we read, before the rooster crows, Twice you will deny me three times. And then Mark goes on to detail, after Peter's first denial, a rooster crowed. And after Peter's third denial, a rooster crowed a second time. Admittedly, the first time you may read this, or maybe you've read it several times and wondered, well, how do these two jive with each other? It is sometimes difficult to see at first, but when we continue to ponder on this and, and ask ourselves, how could both of these be right without them being contradictory? There may be some things that come to our mind. For an example, you may be sending your children to school. One of your children has been in school for three years. The other child has, has never been to school before. Doesn't know a whole lot about it. Let's say that you haven't really prepared him for everything. And so you are about to drop them off for school. And let's say there's six periods at this school. And each period ends with a, a buzzer. You tell your oldest child, who's been to school for three or four years, I'll meet you after the bell, we'll say, right out here in the parking lot. Meet you after the bell. He files that instruction away and he walks off to class. You tell your other child who has never been to school before, first day, he's really excited, after the sixth bell, I'll meet you out here in the parking lot and I'll take you home. Someone may hear those and say, she lied to her children. No, she didn't lie to her children. What did the oldest child understand that the youngest child did not understand? Well, the parents saying, meet you after the bell, she meant the main bell, which to the children would be the main bell when we're about to go home to see mom and dad, and that is the final bell. But if she had said, I'll meet you after the bell, to the young person who had never been in school before, he might have gotten up after the first hour of school and gone outside into the parking lot and said, I'm waiting for my mother for the next five hours. Or think about the illustration. Let's say that you go to a football stadium, and at this particular football stadium, there is a buzzer that sounds at the end of every quarter. And you're going, let's say, a father and son is going, and a mother is going. The father and son have been to dozens of football games in the past, but the mother has never been to one. And so uh, the mother and father and son head up to the stadium, and the 
son wants to leave to go hang out with his friends and he tells his dad, Dad, I'll see you after the game. And the father says, we'll meet you after the buzzer at gate 12. And then the mother says, when are we going to meet our son? We're going to meet him after the fourth buzzer at gate 12. Are those contradictory statements? Not if you understand what the son understood. And that is that when you said, we'll meet you after the buzzer, the son understood he meant the main buzzer, which was the final buzzer. Sometimes in basketball we talk about the buzzer beater. Does that mean that the buzzer never rings throughout the game until the very final buzzer? No, but that is the, the main buzzer, we might say. Whereas the woman who had never been to a football game before may have been expecting her son after the fourth or after the first quarter. Well, what does this have to do with the rooster's crow after the first denial and after the third denial? Well, in, in actuality, there was more than one rooster crowing, but Matthew, Luke, and John only, uh, only mentioned the main one just as the father mentioned the main buzzer to the son, or as the mother might mention the main final buzzer to her older child. McClintock and Strong in their encyclopedia wrote this about the rooster crowing. They said, the cock usually crows several times about midnight and again about, day, uh, about break of day. The latter time, because he then crows loudest and his shrill clarion is most useful by summoning man to his labors, obtained the appellation of the cock crowing. The rooster crowed at different times during the night, but there was one main crowing of the night. In fact, Mark mentioned this in his gospel account when he recorded the words of Jesus in Mark 13, 35, saying, Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming in the evening, at midnight, now notice this, at the crowing of the rooster or in the morning. Did Jesus mean by this that there was only one uh, rooster that crowed throughout the night? No, but there was a period just before daybreak that was known as the crowing on the rooster. This was apparently the crowing that was mentioned by Matthew, Luke, and John. But Peter was, or excuse me, Mark was more specific in his record of this, and he mentioned in, more, in a more detailed way a second crowing. The fact of the matter is, a lot of people may not understand the idea of a contradiction. They may call something a contradiction when really they may not understand what a contradiction is. And so I think it's helpful to consider what one logic book that was published decades ago said about a contradiction. Very simply, it is that nothing can both be and not be. A statement that will help, I think, explain this for us some in a more detailed way is attributed to the scholar Aristotle who supposedly said that the same thing should at the same time both be and not be for the same person and in the same respect is impossible. What did he say? He said that the same thing should at the same time both be and not be for the same person and in the same respect is impossible. Let me try to clarify this just a little bit. If we said that Ricky Smith is rich and Ricky Smith is poor, you may say, well, Eric, um, we're contradicting ourselves. Well, not necessarily. It may be that we are referring to two different Ricky Smiths. You see, for there to be a contradiction, you must make sure that you are looking at the same person, place, or thing. That the same person, place, or thing is under consideration. And so we may be talking about a Ricky Smith in Florida, and yet at the other moment in time, we may be referring to a Ricky Smith in New York. 
Well, what if we say Ricky Smith is rich and Ricky Smith is poor and we're referring to the same Ricky Smith? Well, make sure that the same time period is under consideration. You see, it may be that earlier on in our conversation we said that Ricky Smith was rich. And I mean, Ricky Smith, he had just gotten out of college a few years ago. He had a good job. He didn't have any children. And he had a lot of money. And then Ricky Smith began to have children, and we love children. Children are a heritage of the Lord. I've got three ones, three children that are precious to me. But it may be that after you begin having more children, you don't have quite as much money as you used to have. And so we have Ricky Smith being rich at one point in life and Ricky Smith not being as materially rich at another point in life. But then we must also make sure, if we're referring to the same Ricky Smith at the same time that we're using the terms rich and poor in the same sense. You see, it may be that a person might be materially poor, but what? But he may be spiritually rich. Has God not chosen the poor of this world, James wrote, to be rich in faith? Consider this for just a few more minutes. Principle number one, the same person, place, or thing must be under consideration. If someone reads the Bible and says, well, I remember, remember reading about an ark in Genesis chapter 6 that was really big, I mean 450 feet long, but I read about an ark over in the book of Exodus that was really, really small, just a few feet long, and thus the Bible writers made a mistake. Well, no, obviously that is not a mistake, that's not a contradiction, because in Genesis 6 we have Noah's ark, and in the book of Exodus, we have the, what? The Ark of the Covenant. Someone might say, well, Eric, I remember one time in the Old Testament where there was a man by the name of Zechariah who was called the son of Jehoiada. And the Bible mentions that he was stoned with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. But when I flip over to my New Testament and I look in Matthew chapter 23, I remember reading Jesus called Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And someone might say, as many have, that Jesus blundered or that Matthew blundered in recording this. First of all, you must make sure that Jesus was referring to the same person. Is it possible that Jesus was referring to a different Zechariah? Yes, it's very possible. Just because the death of another Zechariah may not have been recorded doesn't mean that Jesus could not have been including Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Adu, mentioned in the book Zechariah, the minor prophet, chapter 1 and verse 1. Just because his death may not be recorded in the Old Testament doesn't mean that Jesus would not have known about his death or that Jesus could not have known about it either tr through tradition or because he was God in the flesh and simply would have known about it. And interestingly, the fact is, this Zechariah, even though I read a skeptic's article sometime back who said there is no Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, in the Old Testament. And yet, in Zechariah 1 and verse 1, we read Zechariah being called the son of Berechiah, the son of Edu. And then we must also make sure that Jesus was not referring to a Zechariah in the time in which he lived when he was referring to the Pharisees killing the Zechariah. 
You see, it could be that he was referring to what the Pharisees' fathers had done, what their ancestors had done, but it's also very possible that there was a Zechariah who died in the time of Christ at the hands of the Pharisees. The same person, place, or thing must be under consideration. But second, the same time must be under consideration. Someone has read the Bible and they've said, well, I read in Genesis chapter 1 where God made everything and behold, it was very good. But in Genesis chapter 6, I remember reading where all of the intents or the thoughts of everyone on earth besides Noah and his family were evil. And someone might say, here's a contradiction. Everything was good. Nearly everything on earth was evil. Well, what's the difference here? The difference is you have hundreds and hundreds of years that have passed from the time of creation to the time of Noah. Someone once alleged that there was a, a contradiction between what Genesis chapter 11 has to say about the whole earth having one language and one speech and what we read one chapter before in regard to the Gentiles being separated into their lands, everyone according to his language. Well, keep in mind, are we talking about the same time period? This is a very interesting uh, alleged discrepancy, to me anyway, because what we have is Genesis 11, verse 1. Actually, the events recorded there took place back sometime when the names were given in Genesis chapter 10. Again, you have an example of the chapters not being arranged or even written chronologically. Furthermore, the whole earth was of one language at one time, and at a later time, at a different time, then everyone was divided, the earth was divided, that is, the people were divided, and they gathered with people of their own language. And then finally, the same sense, again, as we stress these points, must be under consideration. The same sense. Let's go back to the statement that Jesus contradicted what the Old Testament said about Zechariah being the son of Jehoiada and not the son of Berechiah. Well, we need to also understand that it's possible Jesus was using the term son in a different sense than we may normally use it. In fact, the Bible oftentimes uses the term son in different ways. It may be that the Bible is referring to the son of someone, meaning the disciple of someone. As Samuel was called the son of Eli, being the disciple of Eli. It may be that the Bible is referring to the son, even though specifically it may be the son-in-law, as David was the son-in-law of Saul, even though he was called his son at some point. And so you have the word son being used in a variety of ways, including in the book of Ezra, where you have Zechariah there being called the son of Adu. But when you go to Zechariah 1.1, you have Zechariah being called the son of Berechiah, the son of Adu. Sometimes the word son simply meant a grandson or a great-grandson. One of the more alleged, one of the more uh, well-known alleged discrepancies is found in the accounts of Paul seeing Jesus on the road to Damascus. He received a heavenly vision and Paul we find out in Acts chapter 9 heard Jesus. And Acts chapter 9 tells us, and the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. And then we can read in Acts chapter 22 where Paul recounting these events said, they did not hear the voice. So they did hear a voice or they did not hear a voice. Is this a contradiction? I think we can answer this fairly easily. Gentlemen, have you ever been guilty of hearing your wife, but not hearing your wife? 
I see some head shaking. Far too many times, my wife, bless her heart, she's a wonderful Christian woman. I have sat there in my car listening to her, excuse me, hearing her. But what was I not doing? I was not hearing her. I was not listening to her. I may have had a lesson on my mind. I may have had my work on my mind. But the fact is, we use those terms in different senses. And the Bible writers did the same thing. The fact of the matter is, time and time and time again, when someone alleges that the Bible writers made mistakes, here is what we find out. We simply misunderstood what they wrote. We didn't realize they were using figures of speech at the beginning. We didn't realize that they weren't writing everything in chronological order. We didn't realize that they used words just as we do today in the 21st century, that they used words in different senses. The fact is, the Bible is the reliable Word of God.